You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. Here comes your host, Jeff Beck. Well, hello. Thanks for tuning in to Your Tables on Fire. This is episode number 18. With me today, we have a very special guest. We have Glenn Given, one of the founders of Games by Playdate and the creator of Hearts Blazing. Glenn, welcome to Your Tables on Fire. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate taking your time out to listen to um, Weirdo from New Hampshire. (laughs) It's our pleasure. Let's start off. Why don't you take a minute and just introduce yourself? Uh, so, as you said, I'm my name is Glenn Given. I'm one of the co-founders of Games by Playdate, which is kind of a design studio DIY publishing thing that me and my two partners, uh, Dan Bryan and Meg McGinley, put together a few years ago. That spun out of teaching local kids how to play games at after-school things and in libraries. And then uh, we just decided we like games, so we should make them. And also, it was. Um, all of us worked in like semi-creative fields and it's really annoying to have a job as a creative and not have creative control. So we thought it would be a really great idea to never have to answer anybody else. So then we did this and that's worked out pretty good. Awesome. You mentioned your other founders. Can you take a minute and tell us a little bit about them? Sure. Uh, Dan Bryan is a former co-worker of mine. We both came up in like the printing and publishing magazine industry out here. And uh, we were gaming partners and just like co-nerds. Uh, Meg McGinley, she, well, I met her through the podcast Brilliant Gameologist that she was a host on. She's been a speaker at Gen Con and things like that. And she was running these mini conventions. I met her at one, and we got along like a house on fire, and she seemed really smart. She is really smart, which is probably why <laughs> she seemed that way. <laughs> it wasn't just a facade. Yeah. So, and Dan and Meg are one of the few groups of people that I really could critically take feedback from and was able to give them all of the terrible things that come out of my head and not have them flinch and I was able to do vice versa for them so it seemed like a really good partnership so they do full-time work in other industries and part-time work with the Games by Playdate and I do part-time work in other industries and then full-time slash part-time work with games by playdate and then whenever there's an event or anything we all try and get to those things and present ourselves as much as possible and they um do a really good job of preventing me from driving the business into the ground and um i keep dragging them along on silly game ideas so fantastic let's take a quick trip down memory lane and tell us how you got into gaming in the first place oh my gosh okay so in the before times, when there, <laughs> when there was no internet, when I was really young, when I was like seven or eight or nine, I started getting into nerdy things because a cousin of mine who I had met like three times was had a bunch of first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons books and also was doing oil paintings of the Star Trek Enterprise, so obviously coolest person on the planet. <laughs> 
Um, and that stuff intrigued me. So I started to pick up the some of the AD&D stuff. And then I started to get into, I think my earliest board games were like Talisman, Axis, and Allies. I managed to get into Magic cards during the alpha release of it. So that was pretty fortuitous. And then I had a half-brother who would come and visit from Texas, who was a lot older than me, but he was one of the only people who was around who would actually play games with me. And so gaming started to really mean something. It became a little bit of a, a refuge for me and whatever social anxiety I might have had. It was more interactive than just reading or watching and stuff like that. I could make a lot of hay out of whatever ideas I had or spend an hour setting up a game of supremacy and then everyone's got to go 15 minutes after the setup is done. So, you know, good evenings. And then, you know, moving on to like junior high and high school, I started running various RPGs, doing some light LARP things. I mean, this is in the pre-2000, so like a lot of what is tossed around as LARP today is not what we were doing back then. There was like the White Wolf Mind's Eye Theater stuff was quasi-LARP, but mainly it was like, I got a boffer sword and I'm gonna whack you in the leg. But <laughs> So then I got into that and then it, I just never shook it. We went to video games and like diverged there for a while and then I got out of games when I was in college because I started becoming really obsessed with uh, like printing and journalism and news magazines and things like that and I did that for a while and then I decided that not having an activity in my life that wasn't work was really terrible so I went back probably in the late 2000s and started picking up gaming stuff again. The thing that really, really pulled me back after maybe seven or eight or nine years was actually fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, which is the one that everybody hates, I guess. But um, I love that one. That's that's my favorite one. <laughs> Oh, really? It's still your favorite. It's still my favorite. I like five. Uh, I like the advantage and disadvantage on the 2D20s. I think that's pretty cool mechanic that they added to the game. But I think a lot of the complaints about any system are really unsophisticated and unconvincing and just a bunch of people kind of griping. So, like... <laughs> I thought 4th edition did a really good job of giving me rules for what I needed rules for, and then not giving me rules that got in the way of what I didn't need rules for. Everyone was like, oh, it's just a, like a tabletop combat skirmish system, and, and I'm like, good, because that's what I needed rules for. I didn't need a role to act out a scene or narrative stuff. Um, and I like that. It, it wasn't perfect, but it was a really brave choice. Third er, and Pathfinder 3.5, it, it didn't interest me at all because it just seemed like, oh, it's a much more complicated game. And it doesn't... One of the things I liked about Fourth is what it borrowed from some games like... Um, I'm a huge fan of the current revision of Netrunner, but... Um, like Magic, after Magic got its footing and realized how to not completely unbalance itself uh, with like cards that hadn't been play tested, they they were able to develop these kind of synergies where you get like the this is a deck that we build that it does this type of thing and it's and it's balanced and it's built to kind of engage in the process in this way. And I felt like Fourth Edition was the first time that they were really doing that. They weren't just providing you more rules and more tools they were providing you movement 
moments. And, you know, like a barbarian would act like this on the battlefield and he would bounce back and forth between different kinds of um, enemies. And it just felt a little bit more mechanically sophisticated. Like, I never really thought about it at that level because I was just like, man, I'm going to jump on your head with my axe, which is good. And that's what that's how games should feel. <laughs> like, you should. A good system is one that doesn't have you beating your head against it and memorizing tables. It just has you having fun, and it helps you do that. Is that rambling enough? I mean, I could ramble more if that's what we want. No, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think kind of hit on where role-playing games, at least what I've seen, are headed, which is they're getting more story-oriented, and the rules are fitting away where now you have a lot of games where, you know, it could fit on one, two pages, and that's pretty exciting to me, because then the story can really come forth, because you're not, you know, in a book the whole entire time. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, like, I buy all the monster manuals. I love that stuff. Like, I buy every single Netrunner pack. Uh, I will buy every Imperial Assault miniature that comes out like i love crunchy crazy mechanical fiddly games but i don't want to have to paint any miniatures that's like where i draw the line (laughs) but um like i'll I'll play three hours of armada like let's go and meanwhile people are like we're gonna do a larp about feelings and i'm like whatever i gotta ram this star destroyer into that ship (laughs) um later call me when we're doing another feelings larp but um you know, there's that pendulum switch. So, have you ever had a chance to play Mouse Guard? No, no. I mean, I've read the books, but oh, it's not... it's wonderful. Like it's it's basically the same as Torchbearer, except it's fun. <laughs> so, you know, Torchbearer is Torchbearer is very difficult, and it's very much about mastering the game system and not getting yourself in over your head uh, in the kind of ways that a really great like video game strategy game is where like you need to risk just enough but if you risk too much you will you'll lose it all so it's it's very very well done but it's also super tense and can be a little bit aggravating mouse guard is a little bit just a little bit softer and fluffier in its own way but a little bit more wonderful just because of the setting and it just it, it just works beautifully, and it's, it's really a lot of fun. But so you have these high-mechanism games that don't have really emotive theme about them, and then you have games like the White Wolf games from the late 90s, which are like all theme and no workable mechanic. They're just arbitrary points. You're rolling dice. It's all broken, and you could min-max the hell out of it, and it would be terrible. But you're there because you want to like dress in black and cry in the corner because that's what cool kids do. Um, so I think if those are the two ends of the pendulum swing, that you could have like Warhammer Fantasy, which is a super mechanical uh, RPG, or you could have like Changeling: The Dreaming, which is about love and art and fairies and stuff, but also I don't know kidnapping children um (laughs) somewhere as the pendulum swings back and forth you you we're getting more towards like those good balances that systems that inform story and story that meshes well with systems and i like that's a really cool place to be getting to back in the 80s and 90s it was like make a chart with a hundred spaces. And like that's every game was just some variation of roll a percentile dice or whatever. And no one had really come up with the right algorithms or the right or the right systems to allow you to do things in a way that you wouldn't just in the middle of a game find out, oh, I completely unbalanced everything that we were doing and we've driven the whole game off a cliff. You know, board games are the same way. Like when 
as we've gotten better in designing board games, because more people are doing it because they're more popular and the barriers to production are lower, so more people get to try with it. More people fail, but also more people find cool new things about it. And and a lot of like the symmetry of old games is going away. And so you don't have... I'm trying to think of the right way to say it. Are you familiar with uh, like the Street Fighter arcade games? Sure. Okay. Sure, back in the day. Yeah. So there's like two ways that I think about the prior era of games when it comes to like a tabletop game and balancing things, right? So um, we could play like Street Fighter 2, you're Ken and I'm Ryu, and we're basically mirrors of one another, right? Mm-hmm. Um despite various glitches in the game. And then maybe there's a small roster of variations that that all do different things. But then you'd always run into that problem of um, no one's playing character X, Y, or Z, or Guile is brokenly powerful or, or whatever the case may be. You'd have that terrible unbalance. And then so the creators of the game and whenever they made the next one, they had to spend a tremendous amount of resources remaking and, and balancing all those characters, right? And so that, that took a lot of time. So if you imagine a game like Talisman, right, the adventure... Um, the, the four hours of your afternoon where you just suddenly lose, uh, mm-hmm. or otherwise known as Arkham Horror, another great system for surprise, you wasted half a day. There are lots of characters in that game, but there's such a wide gulf of power between them that it becomes really unfun for some of the players inadvertently, right? So if it's like, if you were playing Clue and then all of a sudden it turns out that if you chose Colonel Mustard, you're only allowed to move two spaces at a time. It would be really uh, terrible. But now that we've gotten better at it, we understand like the fundamentals of the design so we can be a little bit more judicious in our ability to balance stuff. As you can either get more sophisticated or you can take the um, Marvel vs. Capcom approach, which is to say f*** it and just throw a thousand... Oh, sorry about the cursing. Uh, <laughs> throw like a thousand characters in, not care about balance, and go, well, nature finds a way. It'll find an equilibrium because more than half of these characters are never going to be used, but it ends up taking us less time and money to create a whole bunch of flawed things than it does to create a very limited number of unflawed things. And so you get kind of that natural balance, right? Like you get the balance of randomness and of of chaos. So Mm -hmm. what was the question? (laughs) I've I've forgotten, but that was very fascinating. <laughs> how, so how, how does heart how does Hearts Blazing fit into all that? Hearts Blazing is is a storytelling game. I, yeah. I don't know what you call it, role playing. No, I like to call it a we call it a story game, right? Because there's this um, there's role playing games, there's tabletop games, there's analog games, there's hybrid games, there's lowercase LARPs and capital L LARPs and theater games, and then there's parlor LARPs, and then it's like who cares, right? They're all like it's this it's this mess of just names. I know it's a game, it's some kind of a game, just like all the things we're doing are gameish, and all the things that you're playing are gameish. This one has lots is about telling stories, so it's a story game. And that's as descriptive as I want it to be. <laughs> Perfect. It doesn't really need to be more than that because if you put more labels on it, you scare more people away from it. Mm-hmm. Right? And that seems like it's pretty descriptive. It's a story game. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and it's a game. People like to tell stories. Story. Who doesn't right. like stories? 
listening to stories, telling stories, writing stories, reading stories. Everybody, we engage with it constantly. It's not a frightening combination of words. It's not a, it's not a scary concept. And it's not something you have to know nerd ease to have translated to you. Uh, like, I come from a marketing and printing and publishing background, so, like, connecting with people who know nothing about what I'm doing is really, like, I, th- I like to think really deeply on how to do that. So you speak in the most common 1,000 words is the idea. Right, right. So you avoid saying things like D20 or, you know, on turn. Yeah, you, you try and avoid jargon whenever possible. You, like, you minimize that, and then you try and avoid reference to um, really esoteric things. So Hearts Blazing references a lot, uh, but it's a lot of very surface-level pop culture stuff. And the game is very much about tropes, cliches, and while we do refer to them as cliches, like it doesn't matter if you know whether that's supposed to have an E with a little accent mark on top of it or not. You don't need to know that specifics. You need to know that when Optimus Prime walks away from an exploding building and doesn't look back at it, like, that's a thing that happens in sci-fi adventure, right? It's, it happens all the time. People are going to crash their spaceship into the enemy mothership. Someone's going to walk into the reactor core and save the crew. Like, like, whatever. Like, these happen all the time, and they're a lot of fun. And we can relate to them, because we've seen them before in one form of media or another. We've read in a book or watched in a movie or a TV show, and those are some of our favorite moments. So, like, let's make a game that's all about favorite moments and just stringing them along over the course of two hours until we have this wild tale. Glenn, let's take a step back for a minute, because I'm worried if someone's listening and they're not familiar with Hearts Blazing... Can you give us the quick rundown of, of how the game works? Sure. So, um, Hearts Blazing is a card-driven collaborative storytelling game of melodramatic science fiction adventure. Basically, the way that we try and sell story gaming to people is go, well, what was your favorite TV show? So, whatever you think it was. Assume that it's my favorite TV show, and last night I didn't get to watch it. So, the way that we're going to play a story game is you're going to tell me everything that happened on that show, Right. But here's the trick, like, we're going to make up that show as we go. So we're going to spend the first, like, ten minutes just broadly coming up with a science fiction universe. Like, maybe we're all um, magic space knights with laser swords and other types of, you know, vehicles that fly around. Like, you know, like the Centennial Hawk or something like that. (laughs) So, (laughs) the Centennial Hawk. Yeah, uh, so, so you'll have those kinds of um, wink, wink, understandable characters, and then everybody's gonna pick an archetype. So, archetype is stuff like uh, there's a leader, or there's a rookie, or there's the engineer, um, or the ace pilot. You know, like the stuff that shows up in all of these. And each of those players is gonna have a motive, and the motive is largely related to how selfish they are, because um, Battlestar Galactica is one of my favorite things of the past like two decades. So. Uh, Gaius Baltar, I think, is a really great character, and he was very, very selfish, but also kind of weirdly a hero in a way, and I thought it was really, like, I I wanted to see that as opposed to good versus evil, like self, like group versus um, person. Anyway, so you got a motivation, you got this archetype, you come up with your character, you're limited by your imagination and whoever has the enthusiasm for it, and then uh, you're going to have a deck of cards, and the cards represent episodes, and there are story prompts on them, like, oh, we're out on a routine mission when all of a sudden we lose communication with home base. And um, the episode gets broken into three parts, 
And depending on the way that you've played your cards, you may have uh, a certain amount of directorial control over the different portions of the episode. We call it um, having narrative discretion, which doesn't mean that you are the only person writing the story. It just means that you're guiding the tale. Like, you're thumbs up and thumbs downing ideas. You're kind of helping to set the tempo of it. You know, you can pump the brakes if people start to get really far afield of what you want to do. But generally what'll happen after the first episode or two is people get really locked into the world. They know how they want to proceed forward in this, you know, season-long story. And you work your way through a deck of, like, nine to twelve episodes, building up to a two-part finale. And um, as you've been playing, you've been betting these cards from your archetype deck called Cliché Cards. And depending on how you've bet those cards, not only is it giving you narrative discretion in different parts of the story, but it also allows you to collect these things called keywords, which are important to your motivation. If you're the character who, at the end of the game, collected the most keywords that matches their hidden motivation, then you get final say in the epilogue of the story. So, like, if you did really, quote-unquote, well by, like, getting all the keywords, then... Everyone's going to tell, like, well, after the dust settled, Glenn walked back into the wasteland to help people in another town or whatever. But if you had collected all the keywords, you get to be the guy who goes last. And, like, you can turn everybody else's stuff around. Like, you can do twist endings. You can be like, and we thought Megatron was dead, but really, like, a hand reaches up from under the lava or whatever. Like, that kind of stuff. It's not super, super duper detailed. This is all kind of like a, how you imagine, like, a writer's room for a TV show would go, where people are just kind of, like, tossing out, and then this happens, and this happens, and then he flies into the bus, and then he throws the bus over the waterfall, but then the guy jumps and grabs the bus and saves it and stuff. Like, it's that level of storytelling. So you don't have to feel like you need to be a great actor. You just need to have an idea. That's it. And that's all any of us really, especially when we get into like role-playing games, that, that's all that should ever really be asked of us. And if you don't have an idea, and this is a lot of physically what the game is, if you don't have a, a, an idea that you think is fun, we've written down all these ideas. And maybe one of them will speak to you. Uh, maybe none of them will. Who cares? It's, it's fine. But we'll present the types of things that like, oh yeah, you've, you've seen that happen before. Let's try and work that in or... Or like whatever, like that's, it just kind of gives you a shortcut for when you get caught at a roadblock in a story where you where you get, like you draw a blank, you're just like, okay, uh, well then, you know, like a meteor hits or something. It gives you that out that allows you to skip forward in the story. Mm-hmm. You mentioned on the Kickstarter page that you've been playtesting it for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about the evolution of the game. How has it changed? What did it start out as? So we go to this convention in Maine called PortCon Maine, which is like a two to 3,000 person convention. It's pretty small. And it's mainly younger uh, anime cosplay people, and we're, we're usually gaming guests there. And one of the things we do is we do this panel called Making Fun. And the idea is that we drink a whole ton of coffee, like way too much. And then over the course of an hour and a half, we build a game from the ground up, just like from nothing, like working with the audience. And it's obviously a hot mess by the end of it. But we have, like, this idea of this is the game that we want to see. And we've sketched it out, and we've got the basic map of how to get there. So now the rest of it's just filling in the details. And so that's how we came up with Hearts Blazing during one of these, um, wow. during one of these events. 
Because I figured, oh, everybody here likes anime, so, like, what's your favorite anime series? And people would be like, oh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm like, okay, let's make a Neon Genesis Evangelion role-playing card game? And then... <laughs> We just started to hash it out and started to think of like, well, what you know, what are the types of characters that are in that, and how would we represent those, and then how would how would you act as a player? Like trying to get people to think of making a game as more than just designing the details, right? It's not just writing out all the dungeons in the Forgotten Realms or creating, uh, you know, hexagon tiles that have sheep or wood or whatever. Like there is. We want to get that balanced approach of mechanics that inform theme and theme that informs mechanics. And so sometimes you have to think of your game from both ends at the same time, right? You need to like push both of those things forward and check yourself as you go. That's, I mean, that's, that's how I approach it. And that's how I try and get other people to approach it because I think some of the best games I've seen do it that way. Well, let's talk about your campaign. You guys have been live for, what, about a week and a half, I think? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, we're just under 50% at this point. We had run a few previous campaigns, and so we were trying some new stuff uh, with this because we were on the fence about whether we're just going to fund it for ourselves, but it's like a there's like a timing issue with when we can get stuff back from the printer, and this way we're able to get it a few months like five or six months earlier than we would previously planned. But we also really wanted to make a very, very straightforward campaign. Like, um, you pledge for the game and you get the game. If you want to just support us, cool. You can you can throw five bucks at me. But um, I'm not in the business of making t-shirts. And <laughs> I'm not in the business of hiring people to add extra content. On t- it's like, it's... So you get, like, downloadable content on a video game. Why wasn't that on the disc? Or if it was on the disc, why did I have to pay extra for it? Like, I don't, I don't like that. It strikes, me as, it strikes me as a bit unfair. Like, if you were going to do it, do it. Like, just, just put it in the game. It's not like, especially in a lot of role-playing games, like, adding pages to a book is not a huge increase in the, in the publishing expense of it. So I would just rather, I would just rather, I just want the game. And I think other people just want the game. So that's all we want to do is just do the game. Like, yeah, I, no- I noticed that. So you only have the two reward tiers. Yeah. And then no, I didn't see any stretch goals mentioned or anything like that. There are no stretch goals. If we go past the funding, we will make more copies of the game. That, yeah. uh, that's it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> real cut and dry. Did, did you follow a same a similar model with your other Kickstarter campaign? No, no, and that's kind of one of the reasons that we we wanted to try this, right? Because you know, the other we had stretch goals, and then some of them we hit, some of them we didn't hit, and you just end up like spending a lot of time working on what your stretch goals are going to be, and not spending as much time making a good thing. Because you're trying to line up all the bells and whistles for people. And it's like, no, I'd just rather have something really solid that people can take. And it's going to cost them 20 bucks. And then it's one and it's done. And if we do stuff with it later on, great. But I'm not going to I'm not gonna put the cart before the horse and, and get, all that, get all that kind of stuff. It just, I don't know. Of course, what we're discovering is that, like, people really want that. <laughs> like, there is... 
I mean, there is a reason that people do stretch goals. I think it pulls in some level of excitement and it gets people really motivated to push more people into the project. But I'm willing to make that bet. You know, like, I'm hedging it a little bit because I know that we can just come in and fund the rest of the project. So I'm not like super worried about it or anything, but I just want to be able to offer a thing on Kickstarter because it's like, I don't think anybody does that at this point, at, at least not in games. You sometimes see it in more of like physical product stuff, but it's always like, you, if you give us, you're the super golden angel level, then you get backstage passes to all of our shit. Like whatever, dude, just, just make your thing. I say that after having spent like four or five hundred dollars on Super Dungeon Explorer miniatures, so, <laughs> like, and they have elaborate stretch goals of like extra characters, and it's great because I want tiny little chibi miniatures and stuff like that. Right, and and we all heard the story of the project that blows up. So. Yeah, and that's I mean coming from newspapers, magazines, and like we're super conscious of our costs because it's how I pay my mortgage and feed my children. Uh, so it's quite important to me that I don't make something that costs me more to make than I sell it for, right? Like, we're not naive about it. And that's definitely one of the things that leads into not opening up the door to over-promising things. Especially because the more people you have involved in a project, the more likely it is that you're going to blow a deadline or that someone's going to... Uh, I mean, I love working with other artists and creators, but I want to have all that stuff done before I start promising it to anybody else, right? Like, I wouldn't want to go... If we hit this goal, you know, writer X, Y, or Z is going to write a thing because I... I don't want to sell you something that doesn't exist already, right? That seems a little bit disingenuous to me. And I'd rather, I'd rather just go, here's the thing. If you want the thing, it's, 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 you get it with, when you buy this, like, that's it. You, you've alluded a few times to Kickstarter is not necessarily your only distribution for hearts blazing. What other plans do you have to get the game out? Oh, there? well, right now we, we give the game away for free on drive through cards. We already print copies of it, like prototype-level copies, and we've been selling those for a little while. Like we, we took a bunch of them to PAX East and sold out in the first day of it being there. And oh. we've already lined up some distribution deals um, with distributors <laughs> that I'm not at liberty to talk about. So like we've already kind of pre-sold a lot of it, which is another reason why we have confidence in the in the product and we're not super worried about like adding all these stretch goals or anything like that because we don't need to convince people that it's good like it's good it's out there you can see it you can play it and it's fun. What advice would you have for someone who's preparing to launch their first Kickstarter? Uh you need to research shipping. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like yeah, no, you need to spend as much time figuring out shipping as you do probably anything else in your game. Because that is what will sink a lot of people. But um, when you find that you've made something and you've had a quote-unquote success, and then it costs you more to get it all out to the people than it was ever worth, um, that's really <laughs> bad. Like, you should think about that before you before you start agreeing. And this is one of the reasons why stretch goals can be kind of dangerous, but because they start adding all these costs that you didn't account for. And you need to account for them because you are making something that's, that's beautiful, that is a representative of you. So why 
spill it out on the floor of the world. Like, make something that can continue to exist without you keeping it on life support. Make something that pays for itself as it sells itself. It's harder, but it's better. It's better for the thing that you're creating, and it's better for you as an artist. If you've got projects that you can make and then they support you, then it gives you the freedom to make projects that are completely frivolous and just interest you. And you, then you don't need to worry about it because you've got a certain sense of security. Well, we've got we've got these things which are doing are doing good. So, like we make really weird games, um, <laughs> and we're able to do that because uh, Slash, uh, our first game, is very popular. And we do a lot of fun things with it, but we also make games that help people learn how to deal with non-suicidal self-injury. That is not a gangbuster seller, but is like very well <laughs> critically received. And it really interested us. Like those sometimes to get artistic freedom, you need to do a lot of uh, spreadsheets. <laughs> and I think anybody anybody in the business will tell you the same thing. Like, it could be so boring going over Excel spreadsheets and working out the cost of things, but it is so unbelievably important. It's so much more important than, like, how cool the dragon is on your book. <laughs> right. Well, Glenn, it's time for me to come clean sure. and tell you that the real reason I brought you onto this show is to play the game design challenge. Okay. Here's how this works. I'm going to pick a random theme. Mm-hmm. Give it to you, and you won't even have time to grab coffee this time. I have it. I'm already drinking it. Okay, you're, you're good. You're already going. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to give you a theme. You're going to mold over, and then I want you to pitch back to me what that game would be. Yeah, no problem. This is, I do this every week with um, my comic book uh, dealer. Is that what you call The person yeah. who gives you the drug <laughs> of comic books? <laughs> right. We've designed like three games through this exact method. Come on. Oh, well, man, I should give you a tough one then. Give me a tough one. Okay. Oh, you have like cards set up for it? Yeah, I got I got a little system here where it's gonna pick one. So you have the game design game for designers. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, that's that's my next Kickstarter project. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Your theme is hospital mix up. Hospital mix up. Okay. Um, do I like I get to choose whatever it's gonna be? Yep, mechanic. Okay. You get a, and you, you know, hospital mix-up, that can mean a dozen things. You decide. Okay, so here's the game. It's a hand management card game where each side of the card has different values printed on it, right? So have you ever played Hanabi? Sure, um, yeah. So in this game, although you can talk, you're not allowed to look at what is on the back of your card. So like um, Indian poker. But what you're trying to do is to create a healthy patient by mixing and matching the organs and body parts from all the patients. So you're trying to convince people to give you cards that you want from their hand that you can see what's on the back of them because when it comes over to your hand, you're going to get to flip it over. But they might not want to give it up, so you have to negotiate kind of a math trade between hands and create like that. Everyone needs to be involved in a trade every round, and you have a certain number of rounds to complete a body. So you're trying to ultimately build an entire set of yeah. organs? Is that yeah, okay. or it could be like a Frankenstein game, or you could be you could be like mad doctors trying to like sew together some terrible monster, and maybe like the different parts of the body are worth different points, and if you have them ordered in a certain way, it allows you to make um, 
Maybe if you have them drafted into your hand in a certain order, it allows you to force people's cards to flip or to be uh, passed to other hands, kind of like you would do at the beginning of a game of hearts or spades where you're you're drafting from your hand or uh, drafting as it goes around. So you'd have different things like that where maybe there's a deck that comes up and tells you like how you need to manipulate your hand on this turn. Wow. So <laughs> that was way too easy. I failed. <laughs> okay, give me another... <laughs> No, no. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Now that I know that you're an aficionado with this, next time I have you on the show, I'm not going to let make it so easy. I'm going to right. find something yeah. really Dude, anytime. Nasty. That's my challenge. Yeah. Good. Bring it. Just okay. <laughs> you, you're asking for it, Glenn. I'm you're lucky. You I'm not even... I haven't even had anything serious to drink. This is getting really <laughs> out of control. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, Glenn, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Oh, man, it's been really nice to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, lots of fun. And uh, best of luck to you on the rest of your campaign. Excellent. Thank you very much. We really appreciate the support and um, hope that you check it out and decide to back it and enjoy the game. Definitely. Well, that was Glenn Given, one of the founders of Games by Playdate and a creator of Hearts Blazing, currently on Kickstarter. You've been listening to Your Tables on Fire. You can follow us on Twitter at TableFire. Shoot us a message there, and if you have any ideas for the game design challenge, let us know. You can also contact us on our website, www.yourtablesonfire.com. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Shoot up any of those websites and give us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Well, until next time, go light it up. <laughs>